0: Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. As We continue to look at the model prayer. I was meditating on this next phrase that we're going to be looking at, Thy kingdom come. Christ gives us this model prayer after this manner, therefore pray ye, am I on? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Verse 10, thy kingdom come. I was meditating on this particular phrase, thy kingdom come, uh, while I was in the truck, uh, traveling to Chicago and and then later in the week, uh, Akron, Ohio. I was thinking about these particular truths related to the kingdom of God and while at home looking at some verses I just I just burst out in praise the king is coming and I just I was just overwhelmed by that thought and I started in my mind, especially while driving, putting these things together uh, from Genesis 3.15 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation and just putting these things together in my mind and, and uh, just praising the Lord that this theme that runs through the Bible about the kingdom of God, it is a vast subject. In fact, there's a three-volume set that I, I want to order, but uh, just haven't had the opportunity to do it. It's by an author by the name of Peter's. It's called The Theocratic, Theocratic Kingdom. It's a three-volume set, and the thing's worth about $100 if you want to buy it, and it's supposed to be the definitive work on the kingdom of God. And um, I'm, I'm going to get it one of these days, because I've, I've, it's been on my list uh, for years to buy this this commentary, and of course, other things have always come before it. So, as I was thinking through these issues about the kingdom of God, I began praising the Lord because my king, your king, is coming, and I want to go through this. Phrase, thy kingdom come, and try to draw everything together and, and simplify it in our minds so that we understand what this prayer is actually asking. We want to know what the kingdom of God is, so we want to try to define that. How do you define God's kingdom? And to many, Today, this question is not easily answered. There are many views, and the Bible itself presents different aspects of the kingdom of God. And in each context, you have to know which aspect of the kingdom of God is being talked about. The Jews of Jesus' day misunderstood what the kingdom of God was, especially at the time of Christ. Even his own disciples misunderstood the concept of the kingdom of God. You see, the Jewish people and the disciples were looking for an earthly empire that would be established by a political or military messiah who would throw off the Roman yoke, by supernatural power. And so they were looking for, and this is important to understand, they were looking for physical freedom. And the kingdom that Christ brought with him when he began to preach the gospel of the kingdom was not about about physical freedom, but about spiritual freedom. Freedom. We'll get into that more as we move on. Even John the Baptist became disillusioned when he was sitting in jail, and he sent to Jesus to ask if he was really the Messiah after all that people were looking for. He didn't see Christ doing what he thought he should be doing. And so he was a little bit disillusioned as well. Even after the death of Christ, which really shattered the disciples' hopes. And think about the situation that they were in. They were looking for a military, a political Messiah that was going to come and establish the kingdom on earth. And their hopes were dashed when Christ died on the cross. after the resurrection, they were still, according to the first chapter of the book of Acts, and let's turn there to chapter 1 of the book of Acts. I want to point out two things here, Acts chapter 1, and we're talking about the period after the resurrection, but before the ascension. And says in verse 3, talking about that 40-day period between the resurrection and the ascension, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, the death on the cross, by many infallible proofs, being seen by them 40 days, now notice this, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And so for, for 40 days, and it may not be the only subject that came up, but here we have a very specific and narrowed topic that Jesus was speaking to the apostles about. He was speaking to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith thee, uh, ye have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So he he instructs them to stay in Jerusalem, to wait for the giving of the Spirit of God. Verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom? And what's the next phrase? To Israel. Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom? the kingdom to Israel. Now notice Christ's response, he does not rebuke them. He does not correct them. He does not do any of that. He basically says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. In other words, there is coming a day when the kingdom will be restored to Israel. As the Old Testament puts it, Israel will become the head and not the tail. We're talking about the millennial kingdom. Christ does not rebuke them. He does not say you're mistaken. He says the time is not now. The time is in the Father's control. And so they were still at this time Now that Christ was raised from the dead, they were still hoping for that physical kingdom to come. Christ says, no, the time is not yet. It will come, but it's not now. And so the disciples still mistaken about the kingdom of God, that it was going to be, at that time, a physical kingdom. The other thing about the misunderstanding that the Jewish people had about the kingdom of God is that it was only for the Jewish people. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. And Centurion's servant has just been healed. So we're talking about a Gentile. He says in verse 10, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west. Now who are they? Those are the Gentiles. Many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, who would that be? Jewish people shall be cast out into utter darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So even at this time in the ministry of Christ, the Jewish people had a misunderstanding that the kingdom was meant just for them. Now, there is an aspect of that which is true. They're going to be regathered to their land. They're going to be saved wholesale. The whole nation of Israel is going to be saved, and they will be at the head of the nations. But part of that will include the Gentiles as well. Look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. This is the parable of the two sons, but what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. He came to the second and said the same. And he answered, and I said, and I go, sir. And he went not. Which of the two did the will of his father? They say unto him, The first, Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, The tax collectors and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. And so here, the scribes and the Pharisees had a mistaken notion that only the the righteous ones, the religious ones, were going to go into the kingdom of God. Look at verses 33 to 46. The parable, the householder. Here, another parable, there was a certain householder who planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and dug a wine press in it and built a tower, leased it to the tenant farmers and went into a far country. When the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the farmers and that they might receive the fruits of it. farmers took his servants and beat one and killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same unto them. Last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. When the farmers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. They caught him. Cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto these farmers? The uh, scribes and the Pharisees answered, They say to him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will lease his vineyard unto other farmers who shall render him the fruits in their season. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected? That's Christ. The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore say, unto, say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits of it. That's the Gentiles. And so even, again, in the times of Christ, the time of Christ, there was a misunderstanding about the kingdom of God. Look at chapter 23 and verse 13. Chapter 23 and verse 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither permit them that are entering to go in. And if you compare that with verses 37 to 39, often misunderstood passage of Scripture. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them who are sent unto thee, How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. I've often heard this passage of scripture used to show that people can reject the gospel, and that... uh, you know, man has free will and all this kind of thing. Let's step through the passage very quickly. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets is, a, is a, a, a designation of the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the ones who were stoning those who were sent unto thee. Of course, in the Old Testament that happened often. The prophets uh, were killed, stoned, uh, sawn and sunder. And Jesus says, How often would I have gathered thy children? That's a different group from Old Jerusalem, Jerusalem. These would be the people of Israel, not the religious leaders. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not? Who's the ye referred to? Not the children. Refers back to the religious leaders, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 13. You don't go in yourselves, and you're not permitting those who are entering in to go in. And so the religious leaders were keeping people from responding to Christ, responding to the gospel of the kingdom being preached, and going into the kingdom of God. That's, and people say this is why Jesus was lamenting over Jerusalem because the very ones who should have recognized him as the Messiah were the very ones who were keeping people from entering the kingdom of God. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come. Now remember, they have the same idea as the disciples and the rest of the Jewish people that the kingdom of God was going to free them from Roman yoke, Roman bondage. The Messiah would be political, military in nature, throw off the Roman yoke, and then the physical kingdom of God would come into being in which Israel would be the head and not the tail. Jesus responded, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. It doesn't come in in such a way that you're going to be able to see it with your physical eyes. Neither shall they say, Lo, here or lo, there. For behold, the kingdom of God is, and the best translation is this, in the midst of you. There is A sense in which the kingdom of God came on the scene in the person of its king, Jesus Christ, as he began to preach the gospel of the kingdom. It came into their midst, and they were not able to see it. I can tell you why they weren't able to see it. Because they weren't born again. The Bible says very, very clearly, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again, regenerated, in other words, born from above, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so the Jewish people, the Pharisees and the scribes, even Christ's own disciples, had a misunderstanding of the kingdom that Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, in his ministry, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. They were still looking for that physical, earthly kingdom. And Jesus is trying to show us that the kingdom of God is not an external or natural kingdom of the Jews. Let me read John chapter 6, verse 15 to you. There was a time after Christ walked on the water, the people gathered around. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Um, I'm not trying to belabor the point, but I'm trying to show you what they were looking for. And they were mistaken. And so, any short or brief answer about the kingdom of God would be incomplete, it would be confusing, and it would be misleading. Even people today are confused. Some say that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are two different things. If you see it in the Bible, kingdom of God refers to something, and kingdom of heaven refers to something else. Some wonder how the church and the kingdom are related, if at all. Some think that the kingdom of God is only a future aspect of God's plan, meaning just the millennial kingdom, and it only has reference to the Jewish people. And then there are some that say today that we, through the preaching of the gospel, through righteous living, and through the Christianizing of society, can bring in, or we can usher in, or we can hasten the kingdom of God. All of these views are wrong. The kingdom of God was such an important truth In Matthew's Gospel, if you read the book of Matthew, there are 50 references to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? Let me show you some verses. This is how I started the Sermon on the Mount and i want to remind us of these verses in matthew 4:17 and matthew 4:23 jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom the good news of the kingdom of god or the kingdom of heaven and if i use the phrases interchangeably it's okay because according to the scriptures they're the same thing so take in your bibles if you would and let's look at mark chapter 10 Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 25 and 26. It is easier. Well, let's start in verse 24. And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and saith unto them. You know what? We've got to go back to verse 23. Sorry. Jesus looked around about and saith, unto his disciples, with what difficulty shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? The disciples were astonished at his words. That's a strong word, astonished. But Jesus answered again and saith unto them, children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? So to enter the kingdom of God is equivalent to being saved. Take a look at Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 to 25. parallel passage to what we just read, then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall with difficulty enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again I say unto you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And this is the passage that you can prove that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same thing. They're not two different ideas or uh, entities, if you would. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, with God all things are possible. And then look at Mark chapter 9, verses 45 and 47. If thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life than having two feet to be cast into hell. The idea here is eternal life. You've got eternal life and you've got hell, the two different destinies. To the fire which shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. What did this passage just equate the kingdom of God with? Life. Eternal life that which is opposed to being cast into the lake of fire. And so to enter into the kingdom of heaven, as Christ was preaching it, meant to be saved and have eternal life. And so the Sermon on the Mount is about the character, the blessedness, and uh, the citizens of the kingdom's relation to this world. How the world reacts to those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. And we see... As we said before, starting in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 17, on through chapter 7, verse 12, this is the righteousness that Christ is proclaiming regarding the kingdom of God, the righteousness of the kingdom of God, the high standard that our king is demanding of us. Now look at Matthew, chapter 7. And near the end of this sermon the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is inviting people to enter the kingdom of God. Enter in at the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be who go in that way, because narrow is the gate, and hard is the way which leadeth unto life. And what what is... That eternal life equivalent to entering into the kingdom of God, being saved. And few there be that find it. Look at verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is giving an invitation to enter into the kingdom of heaven at the end of this sermon. And at that time, at the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount and the introduction, I talked about the kingdom of God being God's kingship, His rule, His sovereignty, which is recognized in the hearts of those who have been saved. Salvation is not just about being saved from sin. Oh, Greg, Brother Greg, be careful. You're treading in heresy here. Nope. Salvation is about Christ becoming the king of your life. We are recognizing his right to rule over us when we enter the kingdom of heaven. And hence the righteousness that he's proclaiming in the Sermon on the Mount is is operative in our lives and and he is uh, completely saving us past, present, and future from our sin and from death. That's the kingdom of God. Now, there are two aspects that can be seen when we talk about the kingdom of God. Very easy to remember. The one aspect is God's sovereign reign. That is not being discussed in the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm going to cover it just briefly here. The first aspect of the kingdom of God is God's sovereign reign. In other words, God has never, ever, in any way, form, or fashion, given up his sovereign rule over his creation. The word used for kingdom refers to sovereignty and dominion. It's not specifically related to a geographical territory. In this case, you could say all of creation, the earth, and all that's in it. But it's about kingship, reign, or rule. God. uh, I'm going to quote from James Orr. God now and has always ruled over his creation... He created it, he controls it, he has ordained and decreed all things that come to pass in it, he orders it, holds it together. There is therefore recognized in scripture a natural and universal kingdom or dominion of God which embraces all objects, all people, all events, all the doings of individuals, all the doings of nations, all the operations and changes of nature, and history, absolutely without exception. James Orr. We're talking about God's dominion over the universe. Boy, I'm glad he controls it all. God, in his providence, his judicial administration over all things, is bringing all things along, moving them along to their expected end in his plan. And he's doing this in the interest of his people, the execution of his plan, which is to gather all things together under Jesus Christ. And so God controls all things and he guides all things to promote, get this now, to promote the growth of the kingdom as it is now in a spiritual sense and we'll talk about that. All sorts of verses, let me just give you a few here. Psalm one hundred forty five thirteen. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Psalm one hundred three nineteen The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm twenty nine, ten the Lord sat enthroned in the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. And then I won't read it, but first Chronicles twenty nine, eleven through twelve. So that's God's sovereign reign, and he has never given that up. The second aspect that we will see when we talk about God's kingdom is his saving reign. That is what is under discussion in the Sermon on the Mount and almost all the verses that I've read about the kingdom of God to this point. God's saving reign. In other words, God's royal rule over his people through Jesus Christ. God's saving reign is his ruling over his people, his kingship, his rule, his reign, his sovereignty, which is recognized in our hearts and we live it out in this world. God has completely saved us. The end of that will be fully seen in the future in a redeemed universe. You know the phrase, already, not yet. We are saved right now, already, but not yet completely. There's coming a day when we will be glorified and we will sit and rule and reign with Jesus Christ. This saving reign of God, the kingdom of God, the saving reign is grounded in the work of redemption. Only redeemed people are in the kingdom of God today. And only redeemed people will recognize Christ as Lord and King. Hopefully we do. And hopefully we live that out in our lives day by day. God's saving reign is the rule of Christ in the hearts and lives of of those who have already entered the kingdom by being born into that kingdom. Let's look at those verses really quick. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. You're familiar with Jesus and Nicodemus here. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered, said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you have been regenerated, born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5 Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Can't be done. Let me read a verse to you out of the book of Colossians, chapter 1 thought about this this morning as I was driving in, meditating on these truths. Verse 12 of chapter 1 of the book of Colossians, giving thanks unto the Father who hath made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness, that would be Satan and his kingdom, and hath translated us, that would be by regeneration, being born from above, into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. A person has to be born again, regenerated into the kingdom of God. That possibility, that ability came to us as a result of Christ dying on the cross of Calvary. There's more going on when Christ died than we realize. Yes, he bore our sins. Yes, he took the wrath of God in our place. Yes, he redeemed us by his shed blood. But according to Colossians chapter 2, Verses 14 and following, listen to what it says. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And we love that verse. But don't stop there. Look at verse 15. And having spoiled principalities and powers, who are they? They are the unseen rulers of the darkness of this world, Satan included with that. And he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So in his cross, he died for sin. He took the wrath of God in our place. He redeemed us by his shed blood, but he defeated the powers of evil at the cross of Calvary. And so this saving reign of God is... Grounded in the work of redemption. And everything that Satan brought into this world, starting with the fall, bondage to Satan, the prince of darkness, bondage to sin, death, Christ defeated all that on the cross of Calvary. And the last enemy that will be defeated is death. And so we're talking about a spiritual rule today as we talk about entering the kingdom of God, the saving reign of God. This includes the spiritual realm. So, folks, this is, this is very practical stuff. Think about it. I have been not freed from Rome. I have been freed from sin and its power over me because of my king, Jesus Christ. You have been freed from the dominion and the darkness that the devil brought by your king Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches us that death has lost its sting over us. And we were spiritually dead. We've made been made spiritually alive. Yeah, we'll die physically. We might fear that, but God has taken the fear out. You know what? I don't fear death. I fear how I'm going to die. Don't you? I don't want to drown. I fear drowning. You know, Because you're going to struggle for two to three minutes underwater thinking about what's going to happen if you open your mouth and take in a breath. We don't fear death. We might fear how it might happen. We might fear some of the pain that would be a result of it. But the sting of death has been removed by our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a spiritual rule. It includes the spiritual realm. We could call it internal. We can call it invisible. But then there's coming a day when the consummation of the kingdom or the kingdom realized in this earthly realm will be universally, physically, and externally acknowledged by all, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That'll be the time when the rule of Jesus Christ will be totally recognized by all and it will be enforced upon all. Some refer to these two aspects of the already, not yet. We're in the kingdom of God right now, already, but the full realization has not yet occurred. They refer to it as the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory. A present reality with a future fullness. we said that that kingdom came in some fashion invisibly, internally, where Christ could say to the Pharisees and the scribes, you're not going to be able to observe it, but it's already in your midst. Take a look, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. You'll recognize this chapter is the the resurrection chapter, if you would. Paul is giving the proofs of the resurrection. Starting in verse 20, I just want to read down to verse 28. But now is Christ risen from the dead, become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterward, they that their Christ's at his coming. We're talking about the coming of Christ, verse 23. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith, all things are put under him, notice the wording here, verse 27, it is manifest that he is expected who did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all. In other words, the fate of all the enemies of God was sealed at the cross of Calvary. It has not yet been realized yet. There's still death. There's still sin. Satan is still walking about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But at the end of the millennium, when Satan is let out, the bottomless pit in which he was chained and imprisoned for a thousand years, Jesus Christ will take that kingdom, there'll be a new